Well, we are in the book of Kings, 2 Kings in the Old Testament and chapter 21. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open with me. It's always good to bring a Bible of some form, some version to follow as we just teach through it. Old Testament Kings, 2 Kings chapter 21, if you want to find your place there this morning. In our modern era, if you want to compare a bad leader or ruler to the arch-villain of our age, you compare him or her to, we all know, to Hitler, right? To Adolf Hitler. In fact, I read this week of a new law, it's been around since the 90s, called Godwin's Law. Have you heard of this? Godwin is named after this man, last name was Godwin. The law is that it's an internet adage asserting that as an online discussion grows longer, regardless of the topic, the probability of comparison to Hitler or the Nazis approaches one. I mean, it's almost certain how true that is in our day. It's probably way too much of that. That's not the point of this analogy here. It's just that no ruler wants to be compared to Adolf Hitler, right? Well, in the Bible times, in Old Testament Bible times, in the time of the kings that we are studying, the arch villain that you don't want to be compared to is Ahab, King Ahab. (laughs) Do you remember him? We looked at him in our study of kings. Ahab with his wife, his lovely wife, Jezebel. That is the low point in Israel's history. Remember, Ahab instituted Baal worship, tried to stamp out the worship of Yahweh. He built an Asherah, this wooden female fertility god. He sought to kill the prophets, including Elijah. Remember, they killed Naboth, shed innocent blood just to take his vineyard. You don't want to be compared to Ahab if you're a king in Israel. And yet, unfortunately, that is exactly who the king in our story this morning is compared to. Second Kings 21 is the account of Manasseh, who becomes what I have entitled here the Ahab of Judah. He is compared to this notorious king. In fact, he's worse. That's our subject this morning, 2 Kings 21, the next king in line. Now, let me just pause here like I normally do and give a bit of context in case you're new with us this morning or visiting with us or it's just been a while since you've been here. Remember, we're studying this portion of the Bible, God's word, where God's covenant people is the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And they are living in the promised land of Canaan in the Middle East, the same place where Israel is today. They are living there as part of the promised land. In fact, before they lived there, there were other peoples, Canaanite peoples, we call them, that lived in that land that God drove out because of their great wickedness of those people. Notorious for their abomination, the Lord called it, the Lord dispossessed them to bring in his people into this promised land. Just remember that. And now in this period, they're ruled by kings, various kings. David, if you've heard of him, 
King David was really the first great king, the model for all kings. And so we're studying this period of the kings. And what we saw in our study of kings, one of the big moments in the history of Israel was the the split of this nation into two different nations. So here's the map that I've used many times in the past, but it's been a while. Remember the the nation split into two kingdoms or two nations, Israel up in the north, just called Israel now. Don't get confused. That's the 10 tribes up in the north. And then Judah, the main tribe down in the south where Jerusalem is. That was a result of God's judgment. They were split into two nations. And that northern kingdom there of Israel, their first king was Jeroboam. He's another one of those notorious kings you don't want to be compared to if you're a king in Israel. Jeroboam set the whole nation into idolatry and sin. He set the trajectory for the whole nation. And it just spirals downward until it reaches its low point under Ahab and Jezebel. But what we've saw already, where we're at in the study, is God has finally brought judgment to the nation of Israel so that they are gone. And they have been exiled by the nation of Assyria. So they are no longer in existence. This is just remarkable. 209 years, they continued in their idolatry until God brought this judgment of exile. He's removed them. They're no longer a nation. He's brought, the king of Assyria brought peoples, exiled peoples from other nations to occupy that land. So they are gone. So we're left with Judah down in the south, Judah alone. And now we're beginning to see their kings in Judah. And unfortunately, they seem to be headed in the same direction as their northern counterpart, though they do have some kings. In fact, the last thing we saw and where we're at in our study was a very good king. King Hezekiah. In fact, he was the best king that we've seen since David. King Hezekiah down in the south in Jerusalem, he he removed all their forms of idolatry. He took down the high places. He reformed their worship of Yahweh. King Hezekiah loved Yahweh. He clung to him. He trusted him, trusted in him. Even when the king Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was at his doorstep wanting to destroy Jerusalem, he didn't yield, but he trusted in the Lord and the Lord delivered him. And yet we saw right at the end of the account of King Hezekiah, the way the author structures it, is that there's a hint, a hint that judgment will come through this new nation of Babylon. Now that hint there at the end becomes now very explicit in our chapter this morning in chapter 21. The next king, Hezekiah, dies. This good king, reigned 29 years, he dies, and his son, Manasseh, another Davidic king, comes to reign in his place. Chapter 21 is mostly about Manasseh. Let's read the chapter. Again, you can follow in your Bible, or you can just listen. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Let's get it in front of us. 2 Kings chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Hephzibah and he did evil in the sight of Yahweh according to the abomination of the nations whom Yahweh dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as, here's that comparison, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. 
and worship all the host of heaven and serve them. He built altars in the house of Yahweh, of which Yahweh had said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. And he made his son pass through the fire, practice witchcraft and use divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him. Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which Yahweh said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name there forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them, according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now Yahweh spoke through his servant, the prophet, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who, were, who did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols, therefore thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight. And have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides his sin, with which he made Judah sin, in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, which he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah. And Ammon, his son, became king in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was excuse me, Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz of Jotba. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh, as Manasseh, his father, had done. For he walked in all the ways that his father had walked and served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. So he forsook Yahweh, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of Yahweh. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his house. Then the people of the land killed those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his grave in the garden of Uzzah. And Josiah, his son, became king in his place. That's a really bleak, depressing chapter, isn't it? I mean, it's not even exciting. <laughs> There's no story in this chapter. Do you notice that? There's no narrative. There's no plot. Nothing happens like we're used to in the book of Kings. All these kind of exciting stories. All the author does is give the normal formula 
in verse 1. He's 12 years old, became king. He reigned this long. His mother's name was this. And then he just gives this long evaluation of how evil this king is. It's just all an evaluation. And then at the end, we get to his son, Ammon, and it's the same thing. Much shorter, two-year reign. And all he says, he's just like his father. Three times. He's just like his father. That's what he did, and he was killed. The end. That's the chapter. It's bleak. It's depressing. And in the middle of those two accounts of the evaluation of Manasseh and then followed by Ammon, right in the middle is this pronouncement of the certain judgment of Judah. That's kind of highlighted, this judgment. So this portion, 2 Kings 21, this is the low point. This is the nadir of Judah's history. They can't sink any lower in rejection of the covenant than what happens under Manasseh and his son Ammon. Manasseh is the Ahab of the south. In fact, he is the worst king ever in Israel's history. Would you like that title? The worst king ever. He's even worse than Ahab, if you can believe it. Here's the tagline for Manasseh and for his son. If you didn't catch it, he repeats it several times. Some version of, he did much evil in the eyes of Yahweh. That's what you need to know about him. We're not told one thing that he does in 55 years. Because this is what you need to know. He did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. In fact, he did much evil in the eyes of Yahweh. He says some version of that four times. Verse 2, that's how he starts. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Verse 6 is where he says, He did much evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him. Verse 15, now referring to the people because of Manasseh's influence. They have done evil in my sight. And then verse 16 rounds off, this closes his reign, doing evil in the sight of Yahweh. That's what you know about Manasseh. And what we have in this evaluation is just a a nauseating list of unprecedented forms of idolatry. He takes idolatry to a whole new level. And remember, his father was Hezekiah. There's just no guarantee there, is there? His father was Hezekiah, and he takes idolatry to a whole new He completely, in one generation, he will undo everything his father had done. That's kind of depressing. One generation, it's gone and steeps even further into idolatry. Just just notice, I want you to make sure you notice the depth of his evil and his idolatry. He's compared to several people in this list that you don't want to be compared to, as I said. First, he's compared to the Amorites or the Canaanites, the, the, the nations, the pagan nations who possessed Canaan before Israel got there. So he's not just compared to the kings of Israel and their evil. He's compared to the Canaanites. Again, the author does this twice. Verse 2 again. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abomination, it's a strong word, of the nations whom Yahweh dispossessed. And if Yahweh dispossessed those nations because of their abominations, what will he do to Judah? So he says it there. And then again down in verse 9. But they did not listen. Manasseh seduced them to do more evil. So they're worse. 
than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. So they're, they're worse than the original nations that were in there. That's how bad it has gotten here. He's compared, secondly, as I've already said, to Ahab, who you don't want to be compared to, the archvillain up in the north. He's compared to Ahab there in verse 3, where it says he built the altar for Baal and made an Asherah. So that's what Ahab had done. He had built an altar and a temple for for Baal and for Asherah, this female consort, this female deity, this wooden pole. So he does that. But he does one better, even better than Ahab. He actually makes altars in the temple courts. The most holy place in Israel, as we see in Judah, Jerusalem, where God has put his name He has actually put altars to foreign deities in the temple courts. He brought the Asherah, the wooden pole, the female deity, into the temple of the Lord. It's the height of blasphemy, isn't it? Of desecration of God's temple. You get a sense of just how egregious this is. Both times when the temple is mentioned, we know the temple, we saw it in the book of Kings, how it was built. Verse 4, where he says he built altars in the house of Yahweh. The house of Yahweh is just a way to refer to the temple, of which Yahweh said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. This is where I've chosen to put my name. I have come to reside with my people uniquely. I've come to give rest to my people a means of approach, and you have put a foreign God here. Then he says it again there in verse 7, that he carved this Asherah that he had made, and he put it in a house, which Yahweh, and then he reminds him again, he said to David and Solomon, in this house in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore. It's this symbol of rest where God has put his name, this unique symbol of God's presence. He has put an Asherah in there. No king has thought of doing that yet until Manasseh. He participates in child sacrifice. We highlight that of his grandfather Ahaz. It's offering, literally offering your child as a sacrifice to Moloch, a foreign god. Divination the worship of the heavenly bodies, very common, sun, moon, stars, still common today. He did that right in the temple. He shed very much, we're told, after all of that list of, of all that he did, and then we're told, and moreover, he shed innocent blood. He filled Jerusalem. So again, he's like Ahab, remember Naboth and his vineyard shedding innocent blood, he's here he's doing it, but he's filling Jerusalem. He's going way beyond Ahab here. In fact, church history, or I should say church tradition, we have no way to, to verify this. Josephus writes that, Masah, that Manasseh was daily killing prophets. And one of the church father, the early church tradition, connects the, the killing of Isaiah, the sawing and two of Isaiah with uh, Manasseh. That was Manasseh. We don't know that for sure, but he certainly shed innocent blood and then lastly he's compared to Jeroboam again that first original notorious king of Israel up in the north 
He's compared to him not only in the building of altars as alternative worship of Yahweh and subverting temple worship, but in that he made Judah to sin. So remember Jeroboam, 20 times in the book of Kings, it is said that he made Israel to sin. That was his great crime. He set up that alternative worship by which he brought the downfall of the nation. Well, this is the first time in the book of Kings that any king of Judah is said to make Judah sin. But Manasseh has. Again, we're told that several places. That he made Judah to sin. Verse 9, Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations. He seduced them. Verse 11, Manasseh did all these abominations, having done wickedly. And then right at the end, he made Judah sin with idols. And then again, verse 16, after he shed innocent blood beside his sin with which he made Judah sin. Now that little phrase means lights out. It does. It's one thing for the king to go up, but when you have so polluted and infected the people, you have made Israel sin. Every, listen, every dynasty that that is mentioned of in the north, God destroys the dynasty. This is the Davidic dynasty. What will happen here? So, that's just highlighting the depth of evil. I want to draw out here just three implications from this rather depressing chapter this morning. Three, just three implications. Here's the first one. The mystery of evil's longevity. The mystery of evil's longevity. Jevity. This is the worst king that ever reigned in either Israel or Judah. And don't miss this note all the way back to verse 1. You might read right past this. He reigned 55 years. Do you know that's the longest reign of any king of Israel or Judah? So, put that together. The worst king ever has the longest reign ever. Of any king. (laughs) Why? That's not the way it's supposed to work. Right? Evil rulers, they're supposed to be dead after like his son. Two years, as we expect. The longest, pretty peaceful reign given to the worst king ever in Israel. So we're supposed to stop and think, what is that about? Why is that happening? 50, I want you to imagine 55 years. And we're coming up on an election, as I said, Tuesday. You know, and we're, we're like, oh, four years of, of this guy or that guy or whoever our guy is, right? Four years, or in some cases, two years in the Congress. And it's like, oh, this, you heard the report, right? You hear all the ads. This will determine the course of all history. These next, you know, whatever, two years or four years. 55 years, no elections, no term limits, just hoping he dies sometime, right? Imagine that. And on top of that, the author of Kings here records no adversity, just a long, evil reign, and then he dies and is buried in a nice garden. What? Why wasn't he eaten by dogs like Jezebel? And, you know, we like those stories. Just a 
beautiful garden. You can go see his tomb. So we ask why. <laughs> it's a mystery. There is a mystery there of evil's longevity. What is God doing? Now, on top of that, not just Manasseh's 55 years, but then we're given this little note. You see it down in verse 15? Don't pass this by. Talking about their evil that they've done in my sight. <laughs> he says, they have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt. That's 800 years ago. 800 years of provoking the Lord to anger. So, that's the summary of all Israel's history. What is God up to? So we can extrapolate here from the history of Israel, really just to the history of, of humankind. <laughs> the history of civilization is dominated by forms of evil. Suffering. Wicked rulers. We could name them today. Who seem to be at ease. On top of that, crime, abuse, poverty. Not to mention religious type of evil. The prevalence of idolatry. False religion, atheism. So we, we wrestle with the longevity of evil. And we ask questions, and people ask these questions. Why would God allow fill in the blank? Or some get to the level of saying, I can't believe God would allow fill in the blank. There's a mystery here that is... We can't really offer specific answers to those kind of specific questions. Why would a God allow X, Y, Z? Because we don't know his mind. There is mystery. We can offer, I think, limited general perspective based on what God has revealed in his word. And I think that's helpful to do. So let me just say these two things under the mystery of evil's longevity. One thing for sure is that it displays God's long-suffering in the face of great provocation. It displays God's patience or long-suffering in the face of great provocation. When we wrestle with why would God allow, how could God allow these various forms of evil or suffering or abuse, Let's remember that there is no one in the universe more provoked to anger than God himself. No one. And so we see it again in this text, this phrase that we have seen many, many times through Kings, haven't we? This provocation. That's the language the Bible uses. So in verse 6 it says, He did, Manasseh did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. Agitating him, irritating him to anger, his wrath. Verse 15, again, now the people, they have been provoking me to anger since the day they came out of Egypt. So don't forget, no one in the universe is more provoked 
to anger over evil than God himself. And we creatures, finite, can't begin to comprehend the level and nature of his anger. We have a taste of it, and we're supposed to have a taste of it when we see injustice and evil perpetrated. We can't begin to grasp the nature and level of his righteous anger. It is infinitely greater and more pure than ours. No one is more provoked. And add to that that he has the absolute right and authority to stop it now. Often our frustration and anger is because we have no, no power to do anything about it. God could stop it now. And we wrestle. Why? What it shows you is it, it hopefully it makes us stand in awe of the wonder and the depth of his long suffering. That he doesn't end it all now. How great is his long suffering? And we know, we thought on it last time, a couple of weeks ago, that at least one purpose of this long suffering God and seeming tolerance of evil is for the purpose of repentance, a saving purpose. We learned that from Second Peter chapter three of God's supposed slowness. The opportunity for repentance, so there's a saving purpose. Purpose. Now, we don't know how all that works together, how God's seemingly delay and his tolerance and this longevity of evil is working together both for salvation and the vindication of God's name. But we trust it is with humility before him that all of this is bound up with his glory and his vindication that he is working and we will see it one day. But how thankful we are for his long suffering. Because when we read of evil rulers like this and we think of evil that happens in our society, it's just so easy for us to think of the evil that's out there. Right? The evil out there. Once you do something, God, the evil out there. But it doesn't, I hope, doesn't take us very long to think that through before it hits really close to home. What about the evil here that God has tolerated? And been long suffering. Well, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your long suffering. Trust Him in this longevity of evils. And here's the second thing I will say is that how, how do we respond as believers, as Christians? Well, we trust Him, but part of our response is we cry with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? How long? That's a right expression. We are vexed by. The prevalence of evil and injustice, personal pain, and we cry, how long? And that cry is not, not a cry that we are not trusting the Lord or doubting, but it's an expression of trust. It's an expression of pain. It's an expression of hope. Because how long, O oh Lord, means I know you will and you can do something about it. Just hurry up. Right, is, is that expression. I wish you would do it sooner. How, how long, O oh Lord? It's used, sprinkled throughout the Psalms. That very expression. Here, listen to the words of Psalm 94. 
How long shall the wicked, O Yahweh, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Yahweh, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder orphans. And they have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. How long, Lord? That's a right expression. On this international day of prayer for the persecuted church. I can't help but think that often that's their cry. The hands of injustice, evil rulers or governments or peoples. How long? Even as they seek to love their enemy. But that cry, how long, O Lord, means we don't take our own revenge. Because we know vengeance is coming. How long? Remember the the book of Revelation, the saints under the altar. I think of persecuted Christians. These are saints who have been martyred and they cry. They're under the altar awaiting that consummation. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood on the earth? So we cry that. We long for justice. We long for relief. We long for the vindication of God's name and we place ourselves under him. Here's the second takeaway. And it goes right with the first. Because you can only cry how long, oh Lord, if only if the second one is true. And the second one is obvious, the certainty of God's judgment. The certainty of God's judgment. So in this chapter, aside from Manasseh's unprecedented evil and long peaceful reign, the other outstanding feature of this chapter is the explicit announcement of Judah's judgment. We've had hints of it up till now, foreshadows of it that it's coming, but now it's just explicit and it's certain. It's very certain. So look there, I said it's right in the middle of the chapter, verses 10 through 15, where the Lord spoke through his prophets, his servants, the prophets. It's coming with this word that judgment is coming. It's interesting. We know there are prophets here, but do you know that we don't know any of the prophets who lived during the time of Manasseh? None of them are recorded for us. And all the prophets and when they spoke, we don't know any during this reign. But here they are. Likely, he probably was putting prophets to death. But the Lord has his prophets and they come and speak. And again, because of the evil that he has done... And causing the people to sin, he says, verse 12, listen to it. Behold, I am bringing evil. It's the word. And it's supposed to correspond with that repetition of Manasseh's evil. He did evil. He did evil. I'm bringing evil. Ra, ra'ah, the Hebrew word. It's the word that's used here. I'm bringing evil. Now, our Bibles translate it calamity or Something like that, because because rightly, we don't want to make God the direct agent of sin, evil in that way. But what he is bringing is evil. What Babylon is going to do to Jerusalem and Judah is horrific. And he says, I'm bringing such evil calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears it, both his ears shall tingle. It will be terrifying. It will be astonishing. We say things like, your spine will tingle. 
That's what I'm bringing. The people who hear it, their ears will tingle. Us this morning, when we read it, our ears will tingle. Because it's, it's horrific, it's terrifying, and it's so, at one level, unbelievable because it's going to be against Judah and Jerusalem and the temple. Remember, Judah here has this false sense of security. Yeah, Israel's gone, but they've been pagan. We have the temple. We have the king of David. We have Jerusalem where God said he's, he just said it. He's going to put his name forever. He's not going to judge us. So when he does, ears will tingle because it's unbelievable. And it's horrible. He uses all these imageries there. Their ears will tingle. You just keep going. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the line of Samaria, the plumb line of the house of Ahab. These are instruments for construction, measuring. Make sure it's level, but here it's for deconstruction. Because he's saying the same standard that I used for Samaria, the northern kingdom, and here's that comparison to Ahab again. The same standard I used for Ahab. I'm going to come and measure you and you will be found wanting. It's an exact judgment. And I will destroy you and then I will clean you out. And he pictures Judah in the land like food in a dish. And the judgment will be so thorough. I'm going to wipe every last particle out of that dish. Clean it out. Turn it over to dry. It's empty. What an image. I will abandon, verse 14, the remnant of my inheritance. What devastating words. This is the remnant of his inheritance. I will abandon them. Mercy is over at this point. So, God's judgment. So again, just note this under that heading. God's present patience, what we've just seen, is not his approval or his indifference. It's neither his approval or his apathy. Remember, God is provoked You read it in this chapter. He's exceedingly provoked. The psalmist says, Psalm 7, God has indignation every day. And he's bent the bow. He has the arrow ready. He has tension on the bow. And it's aimed at the unrepentant. Ready to let it fly. And he restrains. But don't mistake his present patience for approval or for indifference. His judgment is inevitable. And it will be just, thorough, on time, and to the vindication of his name. That's what we see here in the example of Judah. So while there is a mystery, as we already said, in the prolonging of evil, in evil's persistence, the reason we, we can endure it <laughs> The reason our brothers and sisters who are suffering unjustly this morning for their faith can endure is because we know, we know that God's judgment is just, it is perfect, and it is certain, and it is exactly on time. It may not be the time scale we want. We don't know why Manasseh gets 55 years. God is at work here to vindicate his name, and he will. Justice will be done, and it will be seen to be done. We don't know all of his inner workings of why he delays and his timing, but it will serve to promote his glory and vindication on that day. On that day, every mouth will be silenced. There will be no shaking of the fist at God. 
There will be no, why did you allow? God will be vindicated. And we trust he's doing it in such a way to the glory of his name. Note also here that Manasseh's sin, which leads to Judah's sin, placed Judah beyond hope of recovery. This is an irreversible judgment that he's announced to the prophets. It's irreversible. That is, it doesn't matter what comes after this. It doesn't matter. This judgment is sealed. doesn't matter what's going to happen next, and I say that just by way of preview, because what happens next, this very worst king of Israel and Judah is followed by the very best king of all Israel and Judah. His son, again, his son, Josiah. And it does not matter. It doesn't, it doesn't cancel their judgment. Their judgment is sealed. Oh, God will delay as he does in his long suffering, but he will not reverse course. I just say that because there does seem to be in Scripture a similar type of principle, not just for nations like this, but for individuals. A point of no return where God gives over. A point of no repentance. We think of Pharaoh, that archvillain there in the Exodus account. Pharaoh, God just hardened his heart. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 10. I'll put these on the screen for you. These are sobering words. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. There is a mysterious judicial hardening work of God that again... We don't know. We, have, we, we can't judge anyone here this morning, their heart, and say, well, they, they crossed that point of no return. That's God's. But there does seem to be a point of no return, of no repentance, not being renewed again to repentance. So that the takeaway from that is today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today is a day of mercy. Repent and believe. Now, don't mishear me. I am not saying that there are this sin that's too egregious for God to forgive. Not at all. Not at all. There isn't. His mercy is greater. Cry out in repentance. So I just plead with you, if you're here this morning and apart from Christ, not a Christian, and maybe you've heard this message, you've, you've heard of this, you've been under this word of God and, and yet continue without repentance, don't delay. Don't delay. I don't know what the point of no return is. But today, today, repent and believe. So I finish here, the conclusion, with that third thing where we love to finish always in the book of Kings, the refuge in God's Son who is the King. The refuge in God's Son who is the King. 
We have just a, a glimmer of hope at the end of chapter 21, this very dark, bleak chapter, that Josiah, they appoint Josiah. Now, it is quite remarkable. They just had, like, the two worst kings ever, 57 years, combined reigns of these two. And you might think, uh, let's not put anybody else from their family on the throne, right? Time for regime change. But not so. The promise is to David. David's seed. And so they do. They just put Josiah. He's only eight years old, but Josiah's next. Because the promise to David continues. Now, at this point, we're, it's getting a bit hairy. We're, we're going to have to see, well, how does this promise to David continue when God just said, I'm going to annihilate this nation? So we're going to see how that plays out. But we get where the story is going, don't we? The story is always going towards David's greater son, even the lineage of Manasseh and Josiah is King Jesus. So again, the takeaway, when you read chapters like this, we just read how good Hezekiah was, now how bad Manasseh is. The, the main takeaway is not simply, well, be like Hezekiah, don't be like Manasseh. No, there's some truth in that. Yeah, don't be like Manasseh, for sure. But if that's our only message, how hopeless is that? Because the reality is, we are a lot like Manasseh by nature. That's who we are. We are idolaters by nature. We go after every form of idolatry. We worship the created thing instead of the creature. And Manasseh is the poster child for that kind of heart. So it's not just be better than Manasseh. Don't do what Manasseh did, because we do. And we learn once again that the law, the Mosaic law, is helpless to deliver from this condition. Obedience to the Mosaic law, again, they just didn't listen. From the beginning, from the time he brought them out of Egypt, they've been provoking him. We need something better. And again, as we've said many times, that's where the story goes until Christ. Imagine that. From the Exodus onward, they have been provoking him to anger. He has been long-suffering. Why? Why is he? Why? Why is he allowing it? Why is this the history of God's people? To get us to Christ. It is the focal point of all history. The summation of God's plan. Who will provide redemption. So God's certain and just judgment that we just talked about last point is spent on Jesus. Spent on his son for all who take refuge in him. That's where the story goes. God's judgment is inevitable and it is perfectly just and it is spent on Christ on the cross that we've been singing of this morning for all who take refuge in him. God is vindicated. He passed over sins previously committed that now in Christ he might be just and the justifier. We receive mercy and forgiveness through faith in Christ and God is magnified. We don't know all of his mysterious workings, but we know that it is to promote the glory of his son, Jesus, as our redeemer. So take refuge in him. I'm just borrowing the words there of Psalm 2. I'll put this on the screen to close. Psalm 2, which is that great psalm of God installing his king, his son. And that psalm ends with these words. Do homage, that is, adore, kiss, is literally the word, the son, 
lest you become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. May your refuge be in Christ alone. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we confess that we do not understand your workings in the longevity and prevalence of evil that we see with the amount of suffering and abuse and injustice and violence. And we cry, how long, O Lord? And we are so thankful for your long-suffering toward us. And we pray that you are drawing many to faith in Christ, even amongst our persecuted brothers and sisters. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to know that justice will be done. Judgment is real, but our hope is in Christ alone. And for that hope, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.